because it is my father, Bruce White. Um, Dad got his start in vocational ministry at Eastside Christian Church many years ago. And I mention that because it was there that he ministered alongside some friends of this congregation, Graydon Jessup, Gary Tiffin, among others. And in fact, I believe Gary was present at Dad's ordination. Um, currently, Dad works on staff at Thurston Christian Church in Springfield. He's also involved in um, church planning efforts, and he um, helps coach and guide young pastors. So if you please come up, Dad. So glad to have you. Rachel. Good morning, everyone. Oh, what a treat to be here. And isn't this a gorgeous, gorgeous day? This is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it, right? Nothing like glorious fall days in the Pacific Northwest. And, you know, I love the fact, well, I get a chance to visit a lot of churches. And I love the fact that I can walk into a place like this where most of you are strangers and it doesn't matter, because I instantly know that we are united. We, we are united by our faith, our faith in Jesus Christ. That bond is so strong and so deep and so transcendent. And because of that, I feel one with you, and it is a joy to be here. And because faith forms the root of our individual connection with God our Father, God our Creator. And because faith is what lies at the heart of our life together as God's people, then this morning we're going to talk about faith. And we're going to look at a pivotal Bible passage that reminds us what it actually means to believe in Jesus. And so here on the screen, the title of my message is, Do You Believe? We're going to be in the book of James, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Now, I will have the Bible passage on the screen, but if you brought a Bible, I encourage you to open it up and follow along. I think it's really good for us to learn how to navigate our way through our own Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, I believe you can find one in the rack in front of you. And in every congregation, there are always a handful of people who love to take notes. And if you are one of those people, I've included a sermon outline in the bulletin that you can use and you can follow along and jot down whatever it is that the Holy Spirit might prompt you to walk away with. So take advantage of that if that's important to you this morning. And before we look into the scriptures, we're going to take a moment and pray. We're going to commit this time to God and ask him to guide us. Please join me. Our gracious Father, we're so thankful that we have the privilege of calling you Father. That is so amazing that you, the God of heaven and earth, are our Father, and we get to live each day as your precious children. And Father, at this moment in our worship together, we're, we're thankful for the Bible. We're thankful that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you spoke this book into existence so we could hear from you and learn about you and know you better. Each time we open the Bible, individually or in settings like this, help us to read it through fresh eyes. Help us to hear it through fresh ears. And as we do that, Father, may you then give us new insights into the life of faith. And so this morning, as we now look into the scriptures together, we ask that you would teach us through the power of the Holy Spirit who created this book, the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. 
Please teach us now so that we each might live each day as more faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Christian author Joseph Bailey was known for writing very distinctive short stories, and one of those stories is called I Saw Ghoulie Fly. It's a, a picture of the front cover of the book. And it's a story about a man named Herb Ghoulie who attends a flight school. But notice from the picture on the cover of the book, there's no airplane pictured. Because Herb Ghoulie's flight school is not where you learn how to be a pilot, it's where you learn how to fly. Students take classes in human aerodynamics, takeoff and landing techniques, <laughs> the length of the runway you need in order to take off. They study all that. And at this particular school, the faculty, the staff, and the students all deeply believe in human flight. They believe it's physically possible for human beings to spread their arms and flap them and fly through the air like Superman. And so they take classes on it, and they do homework on it, and they study it, and they debate it. And everybody on that campus walks everywhere they go. Except for Herb Gooley. Because at night, after classes are over and after studies are done, Herb Gooley opens up the door of his door, or window of his dorm room, and he leaps out the window, and he soars over the campus. And everybody thinks Herb Gooley is nuts. I Saw Gooley Fly is a modern-day parable. It's a parable that Joe Bailey wrote to challenge Christians to consider what it actually means to believe. And it highlights two different ways to understand belief. When we believe... Do we just mentally accept something is true? Which is what most of the students and faculty at that flight school did? Or does belief mean we take it a step further, as Herb Gooley did, and actually let our beliefs affect the way we live? Now, to distinguish between these two forms of belief, I call them belief one and belief two. And I want to put them up here on the screen so we can get them clear in our mind. So belief one is accepting that a statement is true or that something exists. That's a basic def dictionary definition of belief. And that's what most of us mean when we say, I believe. I accept that something is true or that something exists. Belief two. Ah. <laughs> that's when you take belief one and you act on it. You follow through. You do the thing that you say you actually, that you actually believe to be true. So, belief one is agreement with a set of facts or principles. Belief two is agreement plus action. Belief two says, because I believe that human beings can fly through the air like Superman, I will jump out the window and do it. Now, the example of human beings flying, we know that's foolish because it doesn't happen. And if we tried to do that, we would not survive, probably. But the principle is what I want to highlight. Because there's a huge difference between belief one and belief two. 
And it shapes our understanding of the life of faith in profound ways. It causes us to ask, what does it really mean to believe in Jesus? See, can we actually follow Jesus if we only embrace belief one? Or does the life of faith require belief two? And we find some answers to those very questions in the book of James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. James tells us that belief one is useless. Here's how he says it. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, belief one, if it is not accompanied by action, belief two, is dead. Now those words were written by James, one of the leaders of the early church, and he was known as the brother of the Lord. And of course, what's really interesting is he wasn't technically the brother of Jesus, he was the half-brother of Jesus. Because they shared the same biological mother, Mary, and they each had a different biological father. (laughs) Jesus' biological father was God Almighty. James' biological father was Joseph. So Jesus was unique, a very different kind of brother. And I often wonder what it must have been like to be, jo- uh, to be James growing up in that home with this older brother Jesus, and over time you learn that he thinks he's the son of God. R- really? <laughs> and then Jesus goes out and starts doing his ministry. And he's preaching about God, and he's healing the sick, and he's casting demons out of people. And and at some point, James and Mary and some of the other brothers, they think Jesus is out of his mind. They go to collect him and bring him home, saying, you're not well. That was James. He didn't get it. And then Jesus died on the cross. And Jesus rose from the dead. And James was transformed. And James became an incredible man of faith and a profound leader in the early church. That's the James who wrote this. And what James is telling us, that faith in Jesus cannot be limited by belief one. Faith in Jesus means action. And he's writing these words because there are a number of Christians in his day who think belief one... Just getting the facts right is enough. In other words, if I acknowledge that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, if I acknowledge that he was buried and raised for the dead, if I acknowledge that when I confess my sins, he forgives me, that's all I need to do. I just need to believe. If I accept the right set of facts, I'm a believer. If I get my doctrine right, I'm a believer. And there's a reason that the people James is writing to wound up at that point. You see, he's writing to Jews who had become followers of Jesus. And as many of us know, life as a Jew involved obedience to God's law, which means that you're focused all the time on doing the right things. 
You live a life devoted to good works because good works is what earns you God's favor. You believe that if you weren't doing good works, you were in trouble. And then Jesus comes along and says, you know, you can't earn God's favor. God loves you. He wants to be in a love relationship with you. Jesus says, you know, my love and forgiveness are a gift, not something you earn. So these Jews who had lived under the burden of the law, they accepted Jesus, they're relieved from that burden of the law, and then they decide, well, we don't have to do anything at all. So they went from a life where works were required to a life where works were irrelevant. They went too far in the other direction. And so James now is prompted by the Holy Spirit to correct that faulty thinking. And he wants them to know that faith is more than just a matter of the heart and the matter of the mind. Faith is an act of the will that affects our behavior. And so, let's say I'm not a Christian, but I'm seeking God. And I come to the point that I understand Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He wants to forgive me and embrace me. I come to belief one. I got the right set of facts about Jesus, but then I got to move to belief two and I have to do something about it. I have to act in order to receive the gift of forgiveness that God offers. Not to earn it, but just to receive it. And how do I do it? I do it through what the Bible calls repentance. And that is active. And it's expressed by praying and saying, God, change my heart. Please forgive me. And then demonstrating my faith and my repentance through baptism. See, faith always requires action. Which means when we encounter that word faith in the scriptures, it always means belief too. And that's true when we first become a Christian, and it's true throughout our life as Christians. Because when we become a Christian, that our faith should motivate us to do more than just think and talk and feel. It should motivate us to do more than just get our facts right. Our faith should motivate us to act, to live out what we believe to be true. James begins to make his case by highlighting a specific example, and he offers the situation of a Christian who offers zero help to a person in need. And it's fair to ask, why did he give that particular example? It's because there are hundreds, hundreds of Bible verses that encourage believers to care for people who live on the margins, both inside and outside the community of faith. God consistently urges us to be generous and to share what we have with others. And so James says, if you think you can just simply wish someone well when they're hurting and in need, and take no action, then you've fallen into the trap of belief one. James calls that faith without deeds. And he says, brothers and sisters, he says it's dead, it's useless. Because a dead faith doesn't change us and a dead faith doesn't change the people around us. And here's an example of the difference between thinking and feeling 
something to be true and acting upon something. Back in the early 1800s, there were many men in England who earned their living as something called a carter, which means that they hauled goods around town in a horse-drawn cart. Now, a few of those men were wealthy, but most of them lived a subsistence existence. They made just enough to scrape by. And one day, a poor carter in the city of London was involved in an accident, and his horse was killed. And he had no funds to buy a new horse. This obviously was a huge economic setback. It would create major hardship for his family. And as word spread about his financial disaster, he's sitting there grieving over this in his home, and his friends gathered to express their sympathy, to commiserate with him and say, oh, we hope somehow, some way you can get a new, new horse. We're all, we're all so sorry for you. Well, one man arrived at that house, and he grew so frustrated at all the expressions of sympathy without any accompanying action. And so he said to that poor, desperate man, he said, I'm sorry too. I'm sorry, five pounds worth. <laughs> and he put five pounds in a hat. And then he looked at the other people and he said, how sorry are you? <laughs> and he passed the hat. And that group of people gave enough money that the carter was able to buy the new horse. They were challenged. And they responded. And as a result, they took what they believed, sorrow for the loss, they translated it into action, and they helped meet the need to offset the loss. That's the kind of thing James is talking about in our Bible passage. And it's important to point out that caring for the poor is certainly not the only way we can express our faith. And if we're not actively caring for poor people, I hope we're expressing our faith in other ways. However, because Scripture has so much to say about followers of Jesus, giving what we have to help people on the margins, we do need to take it seriously. And that's why James writes about that as a specific example of belief two versus belief one, faith. But that's just James's first example. He's not done yet. He's going to drive the final nail in the coffin with a second example and show us the total and utter uselessness of belief one. Here he goes on to write, But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. But listen to this. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? When I, when I read that phrase there, you know, you have faith, I have deeds, to me it, it, it kind of has a contemporary ring to it. It reminds me of people who say something, well, you know, I have a faith that works for me, and you have a faith that works for you, and we can just kind of do things our own way. But what James want us to, wants us to understand is that a belief one approach to faith doesn't work at all. Even demons believe in God. Demons have got the facts right about Jesus. We see that time and again in Scripture. Jesus comes to a person who is afflicted with an evil spirit. And so often those evil spirits crowd and they say, We know who you are. You're Jesus, the Holy One of God. I mean, isn't that incredible? They got the facts right. They believe but it's belief one. 
They don't move to belief too. They have no faith in Jesus. So they just live in fear of him. They don't want to follow him. They have a deep, eternal belief. One, look at life, and it does them no good at all. And so these demons are a profound example of why belief without action is useless. And I know so many people outside the church and some inside the church who are stuck in belief one. And that means they're like the students at Herb Gooley's flight school who believe that human beings can physically fly and yet they walk everywhere they go. Stuck in belief one, which is functionally useless. And so James now wants to flip to the other side of the coin and show us the positive side of things and show us why belief too is a rich expression of real faith. Because while belief one is useless, belief two is life-changing. And he's now going to give us two examples to illustrate that very point. Belief too is life-changing. And here's the example, the first one. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone, not by belief one. So James demonstrates his point by highlighting this example of the faith of a man named Abraham. If you don't happen to know his story, he was a wealthy nomad who lived in the ancient Middle East and God appeared to him and that is really where the biblical story of faith begins. You can read about Abraham in the book of Genesis. And Abraham's story is unusual in many ways, but this, ex this incident described by James here is one of the most unusual. Because God comes to Abraham when he's very old. He and his wife Sarah are beyond the normal child-bearing ages. And God says, guess what? I'm going to miraculously bless you with a son. And it came true. And he gave him a boy named Isaac. Isaac grows up, becomes a young man. And when Isaac gets to about, oh, age 30 maybe, God comes to Abraham and says, guess what? You know that miraculous son I gave you, the son whom you love? I want you, I want you to take him to an altar and sacrifice him to me. Kill your son on an altar to show that you honor me. Now that's crazy. That makes no human sense. How does Abraham respond? Well, he trusts God. And so he sets out on a journey to do what God asks. He puts his son on an altar to kill him. And the scripture says, as the knife was coming down, God arrested his hand. God steps in and he substitutes an animal sacrifice in the place of Isaac. A very wild, weird, and wonderful story. Why does God do that? For a couple of reasons. One is that in the ancient Middle Eastern culture, human life was viewed very cheaply. And many of the indigenous religions at the time promoted human sacrifice as a way to appease the gods. And the God of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham and Isaac, is saying in that moment, no, 
I don't need humans to be sacrificed to appease me. Our God does not require the sacrifice of human beings because we're all made in his image and we are so precious to him. So God is making a profound point in that moment about the value of human life. He's also making a point about the importance of trusting him even when his commands make zero sense. And here's how this relates to our lesson brought to us by James. For that lesson to have any value, it can't just be theoretical. God can't say to Abraham, hey, Abraham, let's, let's have a little chat. <laughs> you know, a lot of these other, other peoples around, they, they sacrifice human beings, but I, I don't need that. So just, you know, for now, don't worry about human sacrifice. And Abraham could say back to God, oh, okay, we don't, we don't have to sacrifice people, I get it. But see, talking about it results in belief one. I got the facts right. But because God asked him to set out and to go through the process and for Abraham to actually watch God himself intervene to stop that senseless act. Abraham isn't just taught a lesson, he lives a lesson. And in that moment, he demonstrates to God and he demonstrates to himself that he has belief to he will trust what God says, and he will act on what God says. And he's not the only person like that in Scripture. So James now highlights a second example, and it's the faith of a woman named Rahab. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. I really like this particular example. And you may not know Rahab's story. This is just a bare, bare summary of it. Her story is recorded in the book of Joshua, chapter 2. And what we learn there is that Rahab is a huge contrast to Abraham. Obviously, she's a woman, he's a man. But also, he's affluent. And she's a lower-class innkeeper and a prostitute. So James is doing something very strategic here. He's selecting individuals at both ends of the economic and social spectrum. And he's showing that our status has nothing to do with our spirituality. And by selecting a woman and a man, he's showing that our sex has nothing to do with our spirituality. No one is beyond the reach of God. And every human being has the privileged opportunity to embrace belief to faith. And so what's Rahab's story? Why is her faith so profound? Well, she's a citizen of Jericho. And even many people who don't know anything about the Bible know about the walls of Jericho and that story. Well, the Israelites are coming to attack Jericho. God has put them on that mission. And Rahab, from within that city, has heard about God. And she's heard that this God of Israel is completely different from the pagan gods worshipped by her culture. And as she's wrestled with all that, she's come to the conclusion that the God of Israel must be the one true God. Rahab embraces belief to faith. And we see that because in advance of the battle, 
The Jewish people send some spies into town, and Rahab helps them. She hides them from soldiers. She helps them get safely out of the city. And because of that demonstration of, of, of friendship to the Israelite people, when the city's destroyed, Rachel, uh, Rahab and her family are spared, and they become part of the people of God. But here's what's really interesting. The scripture tells us that everyone in Jericho has heard all about the God of Israel. They've all heard about the way God marches with them into battle. They've heard about the miracles that God has done on behalf of the Israelites. And how do they respond? They're quaking with fear. They're hunkering down. They don't want anything to do with that God. They got the facts right. There's no faith. In the entire city of Jericho, Rahab is the only person who moves beyond belief one, what do I know about God, to belief two. Now, how will I put what I know into action? And as a result, she takes radical action. And she rejects the religious beliefs of her own culture. She betrays her own fellow citizens. And you can't do that if your faith in God simply is a set of mental beliefs. When the chips are down, you won't do what's necessary if you're a belief one person. Rahab is a belief two person. So she takes a life-changing step of faith and becomes a follower of God. And James summarizes all that at the end of this passage with a very succinct... Try again. A very succinct statement. Faith without deeds, is dead. In other words, belief one doesn't cut it. Belief two is what matters. But here's what happens. Sometimes we get stuck in a belief one lifestyle. I've seen what I'm about to describe. I've seen this happen with a number of Christians over the years. Someone's standing apart from God. They're spiritually adrift. They're spiritually lost. They realize they're a sinner. They need the Savior. They take those steps toward Jesus. They repent. They're baptized. They come into faith. They've moved from just knowing certain things about Jesus to saying, I want to be with you, Jesus, and I'm responding in faith. They become a belief to person, and they're embraced in the family of God. Well, then what happens? They start to get involved with the life of the church. And after a while, they stop focusing on action. They focus on gaining knowledge. Come to the Bible study. I'm all for Bible study. Come to the Bible study. Get all the right answers. Get the facts down. Get the doctrine right. Sometimes for us, Christianity becomes more a matter of getting the right answers than being the right kind of people. And that's when our life stops changing. And we have unwittingly evolved into a belief one Christian. James does not want to see that happen to God's people. And that's why he tells us so strongly here in this passage that it's not enough to know the truth. We must live out the truth that we know. And we're only going to do that when we understand that belief one will not sustain us in the critical moments of life. Years ago, I read about a man, a, a Christian comedian uh, named Ken Davis, and this isn't a com comedy story, though it has a couple of humorous elements. But he tells a story which vividly illustrates the difference between belief one and belief two. 
He writes about a time in college when he was asked to give a talk to his speech class. And so he wrote a speech, and he called it the law of the pendulum and belief. Now, here's the law of the pendulum. A pendulum never can return to a point higher than the point from which it's released. Because of friction and gravity, when the pendulum returns, it will fall short of its original release point. Each time it swings, it makes less and less of an arc until finally it's at rest. And we see that here in this picture. You release the, the pendulum on one end, it goes out, goes back and forth. Each time, though, it swings in a shorter and shorter arc. So Ken described this to his class. He put a picture of it on the board. There was a chalkboard in front, and he, he took a yo-yo, a, a and he stuck it there, and he gave it a swing, and each time it swung, he put a little chalk mark on the chalkboard. And then the class could vividly see, yes, it went across, and when it came back, it didn't go quite as far. It didn't reach the starting point. Back and forth shorter and shorter arcs until it came to rest. So he described it, he explained it, he gave a visual demonstration, and then he says to the class, do you believe that the law of the pendulum is true? Everybody in the class, the professor said, yes, we believe it's true. But what have they done? They've expressed belief one. They've accepted the facts, okay? Belief one, belief one. Ken wants them to understand the difference between belief one and belief two. And so he's got another demonstration. In the middle of that classroom, he hung a massive pendulum weighing 250 pounds. It's, it's made out of metal. Against the wall of the classroom, he had put a table with a chair on it, and that chair is against the wall. And then Ken says, hey, prof. <laughs> Brings the professor up, has him climb on the table, sit in the chair, and has him sit there with his head pressed firmly against the wall. And Ken goes and grabs that pendulum, brings it up, and holds it just shy of the professor's nose. And he says, Professor, he says, if the law of the pendulum is true, when I release this, the pendulum will go across the classroom, and it will swing back. And if you sit still, with your head firmly pressed against the wall, your face will be in no danger. Professor, do you believe that the law of the pendulum is true? <laughs> Ken says there was a long pause. <laughs> he said drops of sweat poured out on the professor's head, and he said, <clears throat> yes, yes, I believe it's true. So Ken releases the pendulum, and it was so heavy, it was making like this swishing noise. <laughs> Reaches the far end comes back toward the professor, and he says, I never saw a man move so fast in my life. <laughs> he literally dove off the table to get out of the way. And as he lay there on the floor, I said to the class, does our professor believe in the law of the pendulum? And they all went, no! And they were right, because he didn't believe. He didn't believe when it mattered most. And I love that story because it makes James's point so abundantly clear. Belief one really isn't belief. It will not stand up when put to the test. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters. We like belief one because, oh, it's so easy. Because we can just say and think the right things. Belief two can be hard. Belief two 
means God says, sacrifice your son. Okay, God, I'll go. I, I try to imagine what it was like for that professor sitting there in that chair watching metal hurtling at his face. I would have found it hard to sit there. But you see, it's for moments like that that the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, we live by faith, not by sight. And so if something is true, even if our eyes tell us something different, our emotions tell us something different, we can act in faith. And so a belief to faith would have kept that professor firmly seated in the chair. It would have kept me seated in the chair if I was there. And that's why belief too is life-changing because that is where what we know actually affects our behavior. And that's what James has been trying to tell us. Because of belief too, Abraham trusted God despite the fact that God's instructions made no sense. Because of belief too, Rahab was able to turn her back on everything that she'd, been, that, that she'd been taught spiritually and become a follower of God. We have those examples to guide us, and that's what belief too looked like in their lives. But it's important to ask, what might belief too look like in your life and in mine? Where might God be speaking to us and asking you and me this Pivotal question. Do you believe? Do you believe? Here's a few examples based on biblical teaching to prod our thinking. For example, belief one says it's vital for us to reach out to people within our circle of relationships who are far from God. And we know that. Belief two compels us to actually get to know neighbors who are spiritually adrift and pray that we might be the means by which they might come to know the love of God in their own lives. You and I have meaningful relationships with unbelievers, co-workers. How might belief too change the way you interact with people who don't know Jesus? Do you believe? Belief one tells us that gossip and slander are destructive in the community of faith. Belief two compels us to stop talking about other people behind their back and to strive for unity with other followers of Jesus. How might belief two change the way that you talk about and interact with other Christians? Do you believe? Belief one tells us that we will never find lasting meaning in money and possessions. Belief two compels us to focus less on material success and more on spiritual significance. How might belief two change the way you make financial decisions? Do you believe? That's the question James is prodding us to prayerfully consider. He's made it so abundantly clear that God wants all of his children to live as belief to people. And so as we put this Bible passage to rest today, here's the question I think God wants us to wrestle with. Jesus, how might you be inviting me to put my faith into action in new and different ways in the week ahead? How might the Holy Spirit prompt me 
prompt you to be more of a belief to Christian. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I have to confess that these words from James, uh, they make me uncomfortable because they challenge me to be open to more than just new ways of thinking. They remind me that I need to be open to new ways of living. Help us to deeply ponder what we've read today. Father, as we just spend time in your presence today and throughout the week, help us to be reflective and to consider where we might be stuck in belief one, where we know the truth and we accept the truth, but we're just not living it. And so through the power of the Spirit, help us to move forward as belief to people so we actually can live each day as ever more faithful followers of Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. We pray this now in his name. Amen.